0: Do take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, actually, a section beginning in chapter 7, really, is probably one of the most critical parts of John's account of the life of Jesus. In this particular section, as we come towards the end of this chapter, we have something unfolding. We're watching something unfolding which is going to have cosmic significance. There are accusers and there is an accused. The names of the accusers have been forgotten in the mists of time, while the name of the accused lives on in the minds and hearts of billions today, and is for many of those billions a daily delight and an eternal joy. To them there is no name sweeter, dearer, better, stronger, superior than the name of Jesus." And to those who are accusing him, there is no name that was more destined to live in infamy than the name of Jesus. But what's going on here is not simply unpleasant for people. What is going on here is tragic, tragic for a whole generation and for many generations to come. Because this is the turning point. Already there have been moves to arrest him. But now there is a settled determination to get rid of Jesus. And in this particular section, the final piece of the puzzle of what exactly it is that his opponents will use as their accusation against him becomes firmly put in place. There about the, the matter Of killing Jesus that I wanted to call this killing Jesus but actually this whole section is really about killing Jesus now what has antagonized them is this that here were people who believed that God was their father and that they were descendants of Abraham and they were proud of both of those assertions Jesus has challenged them right at the very heart of their religion He has said in verse 42 that their father was the devil in the sense that they belonged to the devil. In stark contrast to the expression in verse 47, a man who belongs to God, he's saying you don't belong to God, you belong to the devil. And his argument with them so far is this, that unlike God, they did not honor him. And like un- unlike their ancestor Abraham, they did not believe in him. Like the devil who is a liar, they rejected the truth as it is in Jesus. And like the devil who is a murderer, they were plotting to kill Jesus. So it was obvious, if you believe the lie, and if you want to kill Jesus, you belong to the devil. If you honor Jesus and believe in Jesus, then you are of God and you are related to Abraham, who was a believer. That's the argument that Jesus has made so far. And his conclusion that he's put to them is this, that these people are neither children of God, nor are they children of Abraham. They may be biologically related to Abraham, but they are not believingly related to Abraham in any way. And so their response in verse 48, which is where we came in this evening, their response is this. When, when you're losing the argument, what do you do? When you're losing the argument, you, your default setting is to go to invective, or character assassination, or just counterattack with whatever comes into your head. And so they answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon. Now, you, you, this comes in from somewhere, in left field. My left, your right. But from left field, this comes onto the table. A Samaritan, where did that come from? A demon, where did that come from? I mean, we know that the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. John's pointed that out it, uh, in uh, earlier on in chapter 4. In the encounter that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman, they have no dealings with a Samaritan. It's more than simply, however, here a racial slur or an innuendo that somehow or other he had Samaritan in his background. Here it is a dismissal. The Samaritans had no dealings; the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They they had no fellowship. That is with. The Samaritans, what they're saying to Jesus is, we no longer regard you as an orthodox Jew. We no longer regard you as someone with whom we can have religious fellowship. You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. That's pushing him even further away from them. In other words, here are people who are assessing Jesus' character and Jesus' ministry, and they're attributing Jesus' character and Jesus' ministry to a demon. And if you know other parts of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, you'll know that in discussing the unpardonable sin, one of the characteristics of those who commit the unpardonable sin is that they attribute the work of Jesus to the work of Satan. And here are these people, this is their death sentence that they are themselves pronouncing in their response and in their reaction to Jesus. They're calling him demonized. And it's this opposition now, firmed up, hardened as it were at this point, that helps us actually to understand a bit more of the greatness and the mystery of who Jesus exactly is is, because they have a demand. If you look at the end of uh, verse uh, 53, here is their demand. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you make yourself out to be? And it's his answer to that question that leads them at the end in verse 59 to pick up stones to throw at him. So let's listen to what gets them from A to B. First of all, there's Jesus' answer in verses 49 and 50. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. In other words, I'm not possessed by a demon. All I'm doing is honoring my father. I don't have some demonic self-conceited agenda. Rather, I'm out to do my father justice in the world. Earlier on he had offered them this argument. He had ordered them the argument that his obedience to the Father was the best argument he could find for the fact that he had no demon. Now, if you look at what Jesus says here in this answer, in verse forty nine, you notice that he is uh, perfectly calm. He is non retaliatory. He has the mind of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. And Peter, in his letter, reminds us that this was Jesus' demeanor. He quotes the servant song when he says about Jesus, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is standing faithful to his Father. He goes on to say this, I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. The issue here is the issue of of shame. Uh, They call him names. They spurn him. In many non-Western countries, honor and shame are of utter importance and Jesus would have recognized that, that uh, Eastern impulse. And what he's doing is charging these people, he's charging them with not giving him the glory or the honor, rather, that he is due. Look how he argues here. If you dishonor me instead of glorifying me, you set yourself against God. If you oppose me, then you're opposing the one who sent me, earlier on he said that, and the one who honors me. Back in chapter seven, eighteen, he'd argued that he did not seek his own glory as the criterion of the fact that he was telling the truth. He, 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 he uses that as the criteria for his argument that he tells the truth. And here he adds the fact that God seeks the honor of Jesus and that the glorification of Jesus will be accomplished through the judgment. That's what that word means. He is the judge. God will do this through the judgment of vindication, which the Father will pass, not only excusing Jesus' action, but vindicating Jesus that all that He had said was true. That's what Peter is referring to on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that we're all witnesses. And being exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out all this that you are seeing and hearing. God vindicates Jesus. He is the judge and His judgment of vindication. It will be crucial in relating to the person of Jesus. Paul, writing in Romans chapter 1, you remember he talks about Jesus being vindicated by being raised from the dead. But back to the text in verse 50. You don't want to do this. That is, you don't want to honor me. You don't want to honor me because God is the one who judges. In other words, ultimate issues are at stake in the way you respond to me, says Jesus. Almighty God defends his glory. And when it comes to the final judgment, the criteria is going to be, what do people do with Jesus? He's saying to these people, the Father will vindicate the truth of His testimony and condemn His accusers for rejecting that. This judgment of vindication, which the Father will pass ultimately, which will both vindicate and glorify the Son, will be a judgment that brings death and the devil, brings people to death. And brings them into the realm of the devil. That's his warning. That he gives to these people. God is the judge. I leave it to him. He will vindicate me in the end. His judgment of vindication. Will be your undoing. For he will honor me as you haven't. He will identify me as you will not identify me. To be the one whom he has sent. It's against that background then that Jesus gives a promise, and this promise really emerges out of a general sense of what Jesus has been in the world to do. John has already pointed this out in chapter 3, that he had not come into the world to judge it yet. He would be the judge, chapter 5, in the last day. But right now, Jesus' work in the world is not a work of judgment. This is how John puts it in John 3.17. God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So here he is. He's under all this pressure. People are labeling him a demoniac. And what does Jesus do? Look at verse 51. He preaches the gospel to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone, that is any one of you, keeps my word, he will never see death. In other words, you—you've gotten to the point where you're blaspheming me. You've called me a half-breed and a demon. You're in great danger of God's judgment. God is the one who judges. But I want to hold out to you once more the gift of salvation. If you will keep my word, you will not see death. And his statement is absolute. Those who abide in his teaching, verse 51. Those who keep his word, that's 31, 51. Keep his word, verse 51. That is those who persevere in his word, who obey his word, who believe him, who build their lives on him. Will not see death. Back in chapter, back in verse 32, the reward of believing in him and receiving his word was the reward of knowing the truth. If you believe Jesus' word, you will know the truth. It will open your eyes to reality, to ultimate reality. Jesus' word is truth. Here, believing his word, receiving it, and trusting it has another reward. This reward is life. You will never experience death. It's an amazing thing to say. I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never die. He is saying, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And if you want to have an exposition of what that means, those adversaries of his, get it, get it, in verse 52, when they reply, when they change the word in their response to him, and use the word to taste. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And Jesus doesn't correct them, because they got, got it right. They shall never taste death. So, what's brought this on? Well, he's, he is uh, building on teaching, we Heard earlier in chapter 5, verses 24 and following, about eternal life. Those who believe in Jesus' word, he said, there have, right now, eternal life. Death is no longer facing them, death is behind them. When they come to pass away, they will not be handed over to death. Rather, they will go through that river of death to the other side. And so Jesus is saying here, if you believe what I say about myself and about my Father and about this great work of salvation, you won't taste death. You won't see death. Later on in this gospel, of course, Jesus is killed and rises again. And his death is explained as a substitution for sinners, sinners like these adversaries. I lay down my life for the sheep, he will say. And so keeping the Word of Jesus is to to receive the very words He says about Himself and about His Father and about the work of salvation through His death and resurrection. Keep those words. Believe those words. Cherish them. Abide in them. Live on them. Be transformed by them. And you will never see, you will never taste death. The Word of Jesus is the antidote for sin and death which the murderous devil has brought into the world at the Garden of Eden. You will never taste death. Did you hear that? Jesus puts it like this at a graveside of one of his friends, and he's talking to Martha, the sister of the dead man, and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, that's like saying, I am a poached egg. I am resurrection and life. Resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Though he die, shall never die. Death takes on a whole new significance for the believer that it doesn't have for the unbeliever. Though he dies, he never dies. Because the believer receives eternal life and physical death cannot extinguish eternal life. It's life of the Spirit. It's life of the personality. It's the life of the Kingdom of God. It's the life over which death has no power. A life that is destined for physical bodily resurrection in the end. So Jesus is speaking solemnly and straightforwardly to these people. He's making these people a genuine offer of life. Yes, even in the midst of all of these things they're throwing at Him, He's Offering them life. He will not stop offering life. Jesus' promise. And then the third thing in this little passage is Jesus' claim. They're pushing him. Do you know they're pushing him all the time to this point? They're pushing him. Pushing. He's letting them do it, of course. Will they receive this promise of life? Will they believe him? Well, of course, they don't. They're far too uh, built on what we, what we can see and feel and sense and, and experience. And so they respond, they retaliate. Now we know that you've got a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father, Abraham? This is their argument. Abraham heard, obeyed, and taught the word of God, and he died. The prophets heard, obeyed, and taught the word of God, and they died. So for Jesus to say, you hear, believe, embrace my word, and you will never die, is putting Jesus' word in a different category altogether than these great men. They understand that. In their mind, this is obviously a demonic lie. And so in their response, they heatedly, derisively attack him and ask whether he thought himself greater than their father Abram. Who do you think you are? Whom do you make yourself out to be? That's the question. And it's, it's thick with Johannine irony, this question. This question has already come up in a different form. Back in chapter 4, when a Samaritan woman had asked him a similar question with Equal disdain in her voice. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Here they ask him, Are you greater than our father Abraham? Already in this gospel, we've discovered that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, who was the greatest among women, uh, born of women. We've already learned from this book that he is greater than Moses. He said that he is greater than Moses. Now we're hearing in these questions, are you greater than Jacob? Are you greater than Abraham? And the answer, of course, is that these great men were great men. The difference between Jesus and these men is not a difference of degree, but a qualitative difference. And Jesus, in response to the question, denies that there is any self-praise, self-promotion, self-glory independent of God. In his reactions if I glorify myself my glory is nothing Jesus says that's why he has been stressing over and over and over again in his interactions with these people in my humanity I obey the Father I submit to the Father I want to do the Father's will my meat and drink is to do what the Father wants me to do I'm driven by the will of the Father not self aggrandizement but obedience But he can also say, as he says here, it's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. That's what you say. He is our God. But let me tell you something about the one you call our God. The one you call our God is profoundly committed to glorifying His unique Son. He is profoundly committed to turning the spotlight on His unique Son. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He repeats it over and over again. He brings honor and glory to the Son. He says to His enemies, you do not know the Father. Because if you knew the Father, if you knew God, if The one you call our God really was your God. Then you couldn't help but acknowledge who I am. Because He honors me. He delights to honor me. All of the scriptures point forward to me. The focus of history is upon me. He delights to bring people to the place where they bow the knee. And acknowledge who I am. So if you call God our Father. You don't. Believe in me. Do the math. If that's what God does and you don't do what God does, you don't know God. You don't know God. You're living in the illusion. Look what it says. But if you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I know him, and I keep his word. Here Jesus is letting them into that eternal relationship that he has had with his Father from all eternity that John captures in in the opening prologue of the book where he says that the word who is God, the word who was in the beginning with God was face to face with God. From all eternity. I know him, Jesus says. And the God I know is not a God you know. You don't know him. You don't know him. And all of that is the setup for the punchline. They've been pushing him, and now he spells it out for them. You're claiming to be descended from Abraham. Not only do you not know the one you call our God because he honors me, but you don't even know Abraham because Abraham rejoiced. He was overjoyed, overjoyed to see my day and he saw it. And was glad. He was overjoyed by what he saw. Now you see these people would not have had a problem if Jesus had said Abraham saw the Messiah. Many rabbis taught that. That God had revealed his mysteries to to Abraham of the coming age to come. But Jesus doesn't say that does he? No he says Abraham did see the age to come. He saw the day of the Lord. But he puts it like this. He saw my day. The day of the Lord is my day. These people were not dumb. They realized the connection that he was making. Abraham saw the day of the Lord. That was what the rabbis taught. Here is Jesus saying, using the word day, and he's saying, Abraham saw my day. That is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is my day. I am the Lord of the day. Abraham was overjoyed, you remember, at the promise of Isaac. Because that was the line through whom the seed would come, the offspring would come who would bless all the families of the earth, the Messiah. Abraham believed God. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And what did he believe God for? He believed God for the Messiah. Well, Jesus' audience understand the implications of what he's just said. They are furious. And they said to him, you're not 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? They get it round the wrong way, of course, you notice. Have you seen Abraham? According to Luke chapter 3, Jesus was around 30 years of age. You do the figures. He may have been as old as 32 when he started his ministry. So, at this point, he's probably around 33 to 35, more likely 35. The age of 50 was regarded as the end of a man's working life at which he had reached full maturity. They're saying, you haven't even reached full maturity, and yet you're claiming to have seen Abraham. And to this, Jesus responds, that the sphere of his existence... Is beyond the scope of time itself. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, that is, before Abraham came into being, before Abraham was conceived and born into the world, I am. Not before Abraham was born, I was. He's not just talking pre existence here. Before Abraham was, I am. And in this expression, what he's doing is yes, he's referring to his own eternal existence. He is focusing on his incarnation. He did not come into being at his conception. He had become incarnate at his conception. He would become embodied at his conception, as John says in chapter 1. The Word was always there, and the Word became flesh, but he did not become when he became flesh. The Word had always been, by very nature, God. He is claiming deity when he says, before Abraham was, I am. You remember Moses in Exodus 3. Moses said to God, I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of our fathers has sent me to you. And if they ask me the question, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And here is the clearest, most forthright claim in the gospel that the Lord, if you look at your Bible and they have all capital letters, that's the, the, the name, God's covenant name, Yahweh. The name the Lord. Jesus is the Lord who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus is the Lord who appeared to Isaiah in the temple. Jesus is the Lord who spoke with Adam and Eve in the garden. Jesus is the Lord, the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, the great I Am. Before Abraham was, I Am. And this claim of Jesus to deity, to be God with skin on The implications of this are staggering for your life and for this world and for all eternity. We will never exhaust the implications and the relevance of this truth for all eternity. But let me just pick out one focus of its relevance from this passage that is before us. That the one who makes the promise that we've just looked at for a moment. That if you believe my word, if you... Obey my word. If you keep my word, you will never taste death. The one who makes that promise is not a mere prophet. He's not a minister of the gospel. He is the great I am. He is the Lord God of Israel. He is the creator of the universe. He makes the promise. When he says to you, when he says to you, you will never see death, God has spoken to you. His word never fails. God promises in Isaiah 46, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Because that's what it means to be God. To be God means that nobody can thwart what you do. No one can stop what you plan. You always do what you want to do, what you plan to do, what you intend to do, what you say you will do. God is like that. We are not like that, but God is like that. And when Jesus says, if you keep my word, you will never see death. You can believe he will keep his promise. He speaks and it is. You will never see death. That's part of the... Effect of his incarnation, the writer to the Hebrews puts it like this, Therefore, since the children, that is us, share in flesh and blood, because we're human, he himself likewise took part of the same things he became human, so that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What Jesus does is He releases us from the fear of death. To die is gain. It's to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. To the believer, death is falling asleep and waking up in glory. The implications just in that one area of Jesus saying before Abraham was, I am are staggering for the child of God. Now you ask the question, did the people he was talking to understand what I've just said as being what Jesus was saying about himself? And the answer to that question is in the text. In verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. Stoning was the prescribed punishment for blasphemy. They had heard Jesus say that before Abraham existed, he, Jesus, had existed. They heard Jesus say that there never was a time when he was not. They heard Jesus say that he was the one who had spoken to Moses and had led Israel out of Egypt to the Promised Land. And the remarkable thing is this, that there is in Jesus this self-consciousness. We saw last time Jesus saying to these people, which of you convinces me of sin? Here is an insight into the self-consciousness of Jesus. There is in Jesus, in his humanity, no self-consciousness of sin. And there is utter self-consciousness of his deity, of his eternal relationship with his Father in heaven. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 2, Speaking of Jesus, who is by very nature God, that is, possessing all of the attributes and characteristics of God. Before the creation of the world, before anything else existed, Jesus had form. He had existence. He possessed all the qualities and characteristics of God. He is God. No wonder, he says to these people, you do not know God. This was tragic for these people. Do you know? It was tragic for these people. You do not know God. Here's the right response to Jesus coming into the world. Abraham, looking down the corridor of time, believing the promise of God, believing the word of God, believing God, rejoiced to see my day. Do you remember the very worst day in Abraham's life? On Mount Moriah. Taking his son. His only son Isaac whom he loved. In obedience to God's command. up the mountain. To build an altar. To lay out the wood. To make a sacrifice. To slay his own son. And all the way along. Abraham. Rejoiced to see. Christ's day. God will provide a lamb. My son. God will provide a lamb, my son. God will provide a lamb, my son. God will provide. Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day. And John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world god provided a lamb and echoing abraham's experience paul can say he who did not spare he who spared he who did not spare his only son he spared abraham's boy he did not spare his own boy delivered him up for us all the episode ends with Jesus slipping away one of John's themes, which is the elusive Christ. He eludes his pursuers until the appointed time and the appointed way. He was not to die by stoning. He was to die by crucifixion. For only going dying by crucifixion did he take upon himself the curse of God and thereby merit the wrath of God. As our substitute and our Savior. Before Abraham was, I am. Let's pray together. Father, this evening we ask you to take up the teaching of this passage and to write it on our minds and hearts. We think of those people in conversation with Jesus, sealing their eternal destiny by rejecting him sealing their eternal location by refusing to believe in Him. Grant that tonight, Lord, we here would put our trust in Him, in Him alone, for our salvation. We pray in His strong name. Amen.